Okay, uh, welcome to another lecture for the history section of Japanese 100. Uh, so we're going to uh, talk about the economic miracle today. Uh, we're going to get to that by starting with the sort of second half of the occupation of Japan, uh, which went from 1945 to 1952, and the second half, uh, the second phase, stage, whatever, uh, is 1947 to 1952. That's the so-called reverse course. Um, and then we have the high growth era, uh, and we'll end with the 1964 uh, Tokyo Olympic Games. So before we do that, uh, as always, we will do a little bit of review from last time. Uh, you might remember this famous iconic photo of the so-called two emperors uh, of Japan. Uh, you see that there's a question mark there, which we'll get to a little bit. Uh, but this is from immediately after Japan's surrender uh, with Douglas MacArthur on the, well, facing left side and Hirohito on the right. One looking uh, extremely confident, laid back, the other uh, not so much. One large and imposing, the other not so much. Uh, the reason this photograph became so symbolic is that it seems to suggest something about the future course of Japanese-American relations, uh, and to the extent that it did, it was pretty much right on. Um, and this is the uh, you know it's the, this short, stiff, nervous-looking man with a thin mustache and formal suit next to the tall, authoritative, relaxed man with his hands clasped behind his back. Um, and this ran in all of Japan's major daily newspapers the following day. Uh, and it was taken in MacArthur's headquarters, uh, and it was the first uh, meeting between MacArthur and Hirohito. So you have, as I've said, the tall general, at ease, confident, towering over the emperor. As Andrew Gordon noted when it graced the newspapers, the photo had a huge impact in bringing home the fact of defeat and the subservient relationship between the Japanese nation and its occupiers. Still, as I stressed last time, the appearance of the sort of utter dominance and unchecked power of the Americans uh, and of SCAP, the Supreme Command for the Allied Powers, uh, in post-war occupied Japan was just that. It was an illusion. It was the appearance of power. The Americans ruled through the Japanese, right? They were using the existing bureaucracy to implement their policies. And this was at least partially the result of insufficient uh, staffing, especially bilingual staff, to not just govern a country of tens of millions, but also to carry out thoroughgoing reforms in all corners and at all levels of society. But this practical concession, right, this concession to reality, had practical effects. It had effects in reality. Among the most important was that Japanese politicians and bureaucrats often resisted American demands, sometimes subtly, at other times openly. This recalcitrance from the American point of view, or self-interest from the Japanese point of view, hindered the occupier's ability to upend, to reconfigure Japan to the degree uh, they had originally intended which is, of course, precisely what the Japanese intended. So this lecture is going to, uh, as I've said, sort of look at the reverse course taken by the American occupiers after 1947, and we'll talk about why it's called that. Uh, the 1955 system, so-called uh, the Gojugonen Taise, excuse me, uh, of rule by the Liberal Democratic Party, and the related so-called Iron Triangle of conservative politicians, bureaucrats, and big business. We'll talk about the economic miracle, uh, the period of high growth, and the 1964 Tokyo Olympiad. 
And along the way, we're going to touch on the War Crimes Tribunal and its place in post-war history. Last time, though, of course, we looked at the road to surrender. Uh, we looked at the uh, road to beginnings of the road to reform and recovery. Um, and we thought about the atomic bombings, the three Ds of the occupation, democratization, demilitarization, and deconcentration. In other words, sort of restructuring the economic system. Um, and that included, on the one hand, the sort of busting up of the Zaibatsu, and on the other, the uh, land reforms, etc. Uh, and we touched on the issue of war responsibility. Uh, we didn't really get really deep into this, uh, but it's an issue that a lot has been uh, thought and written about, uh, and it is a very interesting uh, sort of topic if you are uh, looking for something to learn more about. So uh, let's talk about the reverse course. Again, I want to come back to this uh, photograph. Uh, you know, it's almost too iconic in a sense. Um, you know, and what I've tried to emphasize already today is that Japan was not a blank slate. And MacArthur, this sort of image aside, was not an emperor as such, right? Um, this is particularly clear and salient for understanding post-war Japan, especially in the field of economics. So Zaibatsu busting and the restructuring of the economy through the redistribution of land and the deconcentration of financial power was, as you probably recall, central to the reform plans that SCAP tried to implement. It was not at all on the Japanese agenda, not surprisingly. MacArthur saw the Zaibatsu as the roots of feudalism, of fascism, of militarism. Initial reform plans then included dissolving about 1,200 firms, and in the face of concerted Japanese resistance, this had to be downgraded to 325, about a fourth. In the end, further Japanese pushback, combined with strong skepticism in Washington and in the American business pages, uh, and also the exigencies of both rebuilding Japan and the dawning Cold War, meant that only about 100 Zaibatsu-related firms were dissolved or restructured. In other words, only one in 12 of the original sort of goal. Uh, banks were excluded from this. Uh, and that's actually important if you're interested in sort of economic history and business history. That's particularly important, and you can ask me about this if you'd like. Uh, the conservative Japanese elite who met with occupation representatives to discuss economic policy understood that there was no unity on this matter in the American camp, and that they could appeal to the GHQ that, like land reform, expropriation and redistribution of legal private property was a short, slippery slope to communism. Especially as the Cold War was dawning, uh, this was a very effective rhetorical tactic, right? So you had uh, by you had the Iron Curtain speech in 1945. Uh, in 1947, it's already clear that China is going to probably end up a communist country, and of course, in 1949, it does. Uh, you you have the worsening of relations between the Soviet bloc and its very recent allies um, already, you know, by this point. And so there's a lot of fear in Washington that Japan will go from this sort of emperor-centered, you know, let's call it fascist, let's call it totalitarian, because that's what they called it at the time, kind of regime, to one that's actually sort of at the other end of this, which is a communist regime. Uh, and that would be very bad for the American occupiers, who are the uh, guardians, the vanguard of this anti-Soviet, anti-communist bloc. Uh, resistance to American economic reform continued throughout the occupation and so on and on afterward. So results were mixed. On the one hand, for example, the Iwasaki family was removed from ownership of Mitsubishi Bank, replaced by tens of thousands of shareholders. 
On the other, many zaibatsu firms reconstituted themselves as so-called keiretsu, or what I guess we could call zaibatsu 2.0. The keiretsu system of family companies, uh, families of companies, excuse me, remains at the heart of the Japanese economic system today, and that's why I said banking was really important. So again, if you want to talk about that, we can. Overall, resistance to the U.S. occupation, though, however, was outside of this sort of economic elite uh, uh, questions about banking and you know, institutional and structural reforms in uh, uh, corporate Japan. Uh, other than that, it was fairly minimal. Um, and this was especially true given the earth-shaking magnitude of the changes demand. In other words, the sort of uh, ratio of change demanded and resistance offered was surprisingly uh, weighted toward, uh, you know, there, there was surprisingly little resistance. This can be attributed to a number of factors. Uh, one, in my mind at least, stands out above all the others. Uh, and this is that, quote, in Japanese eyes, the inescapable impression of September 2nd, 1945, which is the date that uh, uh, Japan surrendered, uh, was that the West, which meant essentially the United States, was extraordinarily rich and powerful, and Japan unbelievably weak and vulnerable. This was a simple observation, but it carried out enormous political implications. So watching six-foot-tall, corn-fed American soldiers laying out astroturf in burnt-out Tokyo and tossing chocolate and chewing gum to children was the only lesson in democracy that many Japanese really needed though the impact and appeal of this lesson appears to have existed in more or less inverse proportion to individuals' social and economic status in Imperial Japan. In any case, internal resistance by Japanese socioeconomic elites was not the only wrench in the bold plans initially laid out by the occupation. The so-called reverse course in American policy that accompanied both conservative backlash in the U.S. against MacArthur's two liberal reforms, and the falling of the Iron Curtain in Europe meant that the plans themselves were abandoned. Again, Zaibatsu busting is the perfect example of this. After 1947, pressures from Washington and elsewhere dictated that Japan's economic revival was the new policy objective, and that deconcentration interfered with this goal. Despite the best efforts of both the U.S. and Japan, not to mention $400 million in annual aid from Washington, uh, $400 million, of course. By 1947, it was clear that the economy was not recovering. And without economic recovery, any semblance of social order was in danger, from riots, anarchy, even communist revolution. If breaking up the zaibatsu was impeding Japan's recovery by decimating the foundations of industry and trade, well, then the reforms had to go, and the zaibatsu had to stay. So the rationale for keeping the Zaibatsu-based economic system of the Japanese Empire more or less intact was both political and economic. On the economic side, with inflation still at a dizzying 500% per year and production of key commodities and materials including iron and steel, textiles and yarn, machine tools and cement, had not yet returned to mid-1930s levels. Coal, electricity, and fertilizer fared a little bit better, but they were also far from full recovery. On the political front, with communism ascendant in China, uh, Mao, as I said, won the Civil War by 1949, but the writing was on the wall in summer of 47, and tensions between the democratic capitalist Anglo-American bloc and their erstwhile Soviet allies on the rise. Again, Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech on May 6, 1946. I think I said 1945 earlier. That was a, I misspoke. Um, and the Marshall Plan to uh, 
rebuild Western Europe uh, was only announced a year later, uh, June 5th, 1947. Uh, with all this going on, it became increasingly important for Washington that Japan emerge as an economic success and a capitalist leader in the Pacific. The success of this venture was still very much in doubt in 1946-47, as occupiers and occupied alike struggled to balance responsibility and recovery. But in the chaotic poverty and pervasive destruction of these early post-war years, GHQ reforms were carried out against a volatile mix of hope and despair and apathy and anger. One memorable and emblematic 1946 banner from May Day read, Food, not Constitutions. Economics was thus at the heart of this revision. This is clear not only from the way that SCAP eased up on the Zaibatsu, but also from its about-face on labor. Beginning immediately after Japan's surrender, occupation authorities had freed communist and socialist political prisoners and encouraged unionization and labor rights. These measures were intended to act both as an antidote to economic concentration and a catalyst for the spread of democratic ideals. The labor law, which followed on uh, in March uh, 1946, was another step in this ambitious agenda to reform the socioeconomic structures of Japanese life. From October 1945 to February 1947, the number of unionized laborers in Japan increased a thousandfold, from about 5,000 to around 5 million. Simultaneously, the number of strikes and factory takeovers reached what the Americans quickly came to see as alarming rates. In 1946 alone, a million or so unionized laborers participated in 1,260 disputes with management. Alarm, both in the GHQ and among conservative Japanese elites, reached a fever pitch when communist and socialist-affiliated national labor federations planned a nationwide open-ended general strike to begin on February 1, 1947, shutting down public transportation and services, communications, and production. Fearing the genie released from the bottle, Scap put the kibosh on the whole strike. In doing so, the Americans allied themselves with the conservative resistance of the Yoshida Shigeru government. Yoshida began his career as a consul in Manchuria, but became perhaps the most important politician of post-war Japan. He was acceptable to the Americans because he had collaborated with uh, Konoe Fumimaro to push for peace in the later years of the war. He served as prime minister for a total of 86 months between May 1946 and December 1954. He lost office briefly for, uh, in, a, in 1947-48, but basically these are the Yoshida years or the Yoshida era, uh, these years from 1948 to 1954. This is a retroactive recognition of his important role in the rebuilding of Japan after 1945. While he was in power, Yoshida was often disparaged as an inept relic of a bygone age, but he put his stamp on the course of modern Japan in a number of important ways. Yoshida was a strong advocate for a weak Japan. He represented conservative and elite Japanese interests. As much as any one individual, it was Yoshida who forged the so-called Iron Triangle of big business, bureaucracy, and conservative politicians, which strongly determined the shape of Japanese post-war society. It was also Yoshida who presided over Japan's emergence as a critical military and economic partner to the U.S. When he was uh, driving into bombed-out Tokyo to take his post as prime minister, Yoshida's car was halted by a group of American soldiers. Yoshida and his driver feared the worst, 
but they were relieved to have the soldiers explain politely that they had lost their way and wondered whether they could have a lift. Once seated in the car, they pressed chewing gum, chocolate, and cigarettes on the startled Japanese. Later, Yoshida wrote that, quote, the incident surprised and pleased us, feelings that were probably shared by the majority of Japanese on their initial contact with the men of the occupation forces. It must have suggested that the occupation would be well-meaning, in effect, that it could be managed. Indeed, it would soon work to his advantage. Later, when he was appointed prime minister, Yoshida is said to have opened his first cabinet meeting by pointing out that there was such a thing as losing a war, but winning the peace. As I've indicated, Yoshida was helped in his campaign for peaceful victory by the internal schisms and changing politics of, U of the U.S.-led occupation. The canny premier Yoshida quickly realized that SCAP was internally divided and that those divisions could be exploited. Yoshida later wrote in his memoirs that the military men in SCAP, as opposed to the civilians, were reasonable and approachable. The military men, from MacArthur on down, were realists, while the idealists were more troublesome. Even before the war ended, <clears throat> there were two schools of thought in Washington about how post-surrender Japan ought to be handled. On the one hand, MacArthur and his supporters saw deep, even fundamental problems in Japanese society that could only be cured by radical, wholesale reform. But there was another faction that saw no need for thoroughgoing changes. These soldiers and politicians believed that the aggressions of the Japanese Empire had been the fault of a few bad apples. In other words, that Japan had been hijacked by a small but cancerous cadre of militarists who had led an otherwise healthy modern nation-state down the road to ruin. They advocated a minimalist approach disband the military, revise the laws, and let Japan recover on its own. These two opposing views are sometimes referred to as root versus stumble, reflecting the conflicting beliefs that on the one hand Japan was fundamentally rotten at its core and must be completely rebuilt from whole cloth, or that it was basically sound and healthy but had been dragged off the path of civilization and righteousness by a handful of extremists. For the stumble theorists, with the poisonous military surgically removed, Japan could be handed back more or less as is to the responsible elements of the pre-war elite, and that would be business leaders and conservative politicians like Yoshida. The new American policy meshed neatly with Yoshida's desire to regain Japanese independence and international position through economic strength, because the influence of the stumblers grew in 1947 as the uh, World War II allies split into the Eastern and Western, or American and Soviet blocs. Um, and SCAP's policies reflected this change. Economic deconcentration, as we've talked about, was no longer a, a priority. In fact, it was anathema to the new priorities of economic recovery above all else. The same was true, by the way, for war reparations. Punitive, long-lasting repayment schemes threatened to repeat the tragedies that had allowed Hitler to rise in Germany and so they were off the table as well. The capital, machinery, facilities, and expertise of the old capitalist cabals were indispensable to rebuilding Japan. This is the point at which the list of a thousand firms scheduled for dissolution suddenly became less than 20. SCAP also began to crack down on the black markets to address skyrocketing inflation, including in prices and wages, etc. And initially, this was unsuccessful. The official prices of basic material and wages were artificially held down and stabilized at a respective 65 times and 28 times their pre-war levels. Inflation, however, continued unchecked. And this is when uh, American banker Joseph Dodge, chairman of the Detroit Bank, came in. 
Dodge had been instrumental in writing German finances after the war uh, in Europe. In Japan, his eponymous Dodge Plan, implemented from 1949, was a program of austerity and so-called tough love. To be fair, the nine-point plan had actually been formulated by the Federal Reserve economist Ralph Young the year before, but it was left to Dodge to plan, persuade, and cajole, and cajole the cabinet and diet into implementing a new course of economic austerity based on the Young Report's nine points, commonly referred to as the Nine Commandments. Dodge pushed the Japanese government to cut spending and eliminate subsidies and state loans to businesses. The uh, consolidated deficit in 1948 had been estimated at 160 billion yen, in other words, 6% of GDP. In 1949, Dodge turned that into a surplus of 260 billion yen, 7.7% of GDP. So 1948, uh, debt of 6% of GDP, 1949, surplus of almost 8%. Perhaps most famously, though, Dodge also set the yen-dollar exchange rate at 360 yen to the dollar. This was the so-called Dodge Line. Uh, the yen was apparently pegged at 360 in part because the Japanese word en for yen means circle. That's the same kanji as maru. And there are 600, uh, 360 degrees in a circle, so just pick a number, eh, 360, because it's a circle. Uh, there were other sounder economic reasons, too. For example, international competitiveness for cheap manufacturers was one that topped the list. The yen dollar rate remained fixed for the next 22 years. It was not a floating, changing exchange rate. So it was $1.360 yen uh, for the next 22 years. These draconian retrenchments were so successful in combating inflation that they actually produced a deflationary death spiral. The complete collapse of the Japanese economy because of Dodge's austerity policies, because that's generally what austerity policies lead to, was averted mostly by the special procurement boom that came with the Korean War, and which we discussed in part last time. The U.S. war effort came to constitute about 60% of Japanese exports, which tripled by 1951. Production jumped almost 70% during the same period. Corporate balance sheets were in the black for the first time since defeat, bringing a wave of investment in factories and equipment, which stimulated the economy as a whole. GNP began growing at double-digit rates. Japan's recovery was underway. The tastelessly named gift from the heavens, in other words, the uh, American orders for uh, ammunition and stuff for the war, saved the Japanese economy, where a post-war version of wartime planning, the so-called priority production system, which funneled resources to heavy industries to kickstart the moribund economy, uh, had not. The economy was not the only sector in which the Americans reversed course. The Red Purge of 1950 was another facet of the same nascent Cold War reorientation of policy toward Japan. MacArthur initially released socialist and communist leaders from their wartime imprisonment, and considered them an important counterbalance to what he saw as fascism and totalitarianism in the wartime empire. In the first post-war election, held in April 1947, the Socialist Party emerged as the largest party and formed a short-lived coalition government with the Democratic Party. But by 1950, the GHQ was marching to a different beat entirely. SCAP encouraged the re-emergent conservative government's crackdown on the Japanese Communist Party, the JCP. 
Uh, and that year, about 13,000 alleged JCP members were sacked and blacklisted in both the public and private sectors. The justification for this purge was precisely the same as that had been, which had been given by the Americans just a few years earlier when SCAP had purged Japan's wartime elites. In other words, they were inhibiting Japanese recovery. The even greater irony is that the Red Purge occurred simultaneously to a de-purge of many of those wartime leaders. Uh, in other words, you purged the wartime leaders because they were bad for Japan, then you purged the opposition to those leaders because they were bad for Japan, and you brought the original bad guys back. Okay, uh, as one does. Anyway, uh, those wartime leaders were uh, rehabilitated far more easily and quickly than the nation as a whole, and returned to positions of power and influence. The occupation officially ended in April 1952, with the enforcement of the September 1951 Treaty of San Francisco. The treaty, which was signed at the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco by representatives of 48 nations, restored Japanese sovereignty. In other words, there was an independent country of Japan again, for the first time since 1945. This agreement formally ended the state of war between Japan and the Allied forces, but left much else unresolved. Neither uh, Mao's communist mainland regime nor Chiang Kai-shek's Republic of China, in other words, Taiwan, was a signatory, for example. The Soviet Union walked out of the no negotiations when it learned that Washington intended to keep thousands of U.S. troops stationed in Japan indefinitely. They're still there. Japan relinquished its claims on Korea, Taiwan, the Pescadores, its Pacific Island Empire, and the Kurils and southern Sakhalin up north. Okinawa remained in American hands. Moscow refused to return the northern islands, i.e. the Kurils and Sakhalin, which it had seized in the final days of the war. Both north and south are problematic to this day. Despite the ostensible handover of Okinawa in 1972 and an armistice with the Soviets in 1956, both the, uh, what I mean by North and South is these territories are still problematic for Japan in its international relations. Uh, you might be surprised the degree to which uh, the uh, Northern Islands still come up very regularly in uh, the Japanese news. Uh, they're always uh, some sort of friction or conflict with the Russians. Washington's plan to hold on to Okinawa and to locate a massive military presence in its new client state was given shape in the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which was signed several hours after the San Francisco Treaty. Uh, officially, this was imaginatively named the Security Treaty between the United States and Japan, but it's known colloquially uh, in Japan, um, and to some extent outside of Japan, by the Japanese abbreviation, AMPO. Uh, you will also see this spelled A-M- PO as opposed to ANPO, but that's only in sort of older uh, documents. Uh, anyway, the agreement granted Washington the right to dispose United States land, air, and sea forces in and about Japan for the purpose of the maintenance of international peace and security in the Far East and the security of Japan against armed attack from without, including assistance given, in, including assistance given at the express request of the Japanese government to put down large-scale internal riots and disturbances in Japan caused through instigation or intervention by an outside power or powers. Uh, in other words, if the Soviets or uh, Mao's communists manage to get some support in Japan and stir up any trouble, the Americans can come in and crack down on it. 
Article 5 of the San Francisco Treaty had recognized the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense, referred to in Article 51 of the Charter of the UN, and that uh, Japan may voluntarily enter into collective security arrangements. The U.S. promptly took advantage of this provision to secure its own interests. Anpo pleased very few people in Japan. On the left, uh, people tended to see a hypocritical violation of the principles of peace and neutrality, which the American occupiers themselves had so forcefully lobbied for and enshrined in the Constitution just a half a decade earlier. They were additionally concerned that Japan would, by its submission under the American Cold War umbrella, uh, become a sort of soft target for America's many enemies in the world. The right worried more that this agreement violated the sovereignty supposedly restored to Japan just hours early in the San Francisco Treaty. Both positions were reasonable. Yoshida Shigeru, however, accepted what was scorned and lampooned by others as subordinate independence as the best practical solution for a weak Japan. And as we'll discuss in a little bit more detail later, conservatives were additionally concerned that, cut off from China, the Soviet Union, and mostly its former colonies, Japan's economic recovery would be slowed because the nation would be starved for both raw materials and export markets. This turned out to be an unfounded fear. Washington's policies toward Tokyo helped Japan to find trading partners, not least the U.S. itself with the uh, special procurements, etc., which got its economy back on track. In a sense, with an open field for the import of raw materials and access to foreign markets, Japan seemed to have achieved its chief goals. In other words, by accepting a new position as an American client state, Yoshida Shigeru allowed Japan to focus on economic recovery, then growth, rather than on foreign affairs and defense. This laid the foundations for the so-called miracle, as well as the 1955 system of conservative rule, which has continued more or less unabated and uninterrupted to this day. Before we move on to thinking about those things, uh, the Arab high growth, the 55 system, uh, I want to take one uh, last and nonetheless very important look at the occupation itself, and that is uh, the Tokyo war crimes trial, which was carried out uh, during the occupation. So it's true on the one hand that the occupation years were characterized by massive turmoil. It's also true that the relationship of conqueror and conquered was surprisingly amicable and cooperative from the start. Despite initial misgivings on both sides, hostility soon gave way to curiosity, tolerance, and usually friendship. This was a good thing, because at war's end, Japan was in ruins. Tokyo had lost 57% of its dwellings, Osaka about 60%. In all, 81 cities had been damaged by air raids. Nationally, about 20% of the houses had been destroyed by the air raids, and about 8 million people had become homeless. Three years after the end of the war, one in four families still did not have regular dwellings. Those who lost their homes lived in shacks, packing crates, and corrugated iron lean-tos, or slept in railroad station passageways. Makeshift huts remained in the major cities as long as a decade after the war ended. The transportation system, telephones, power plants, and other utilities were on the verge of breaking down. The U.S. air and naval attacks had destroyed 30% of Japan's industrial capacity, 80% of its shipping, and 30% of its thermal power. At the end of the war, industrial production stood at barely 10% of normal pre-war levels. 
This is not to mention the devastating food shortages and the myriad of other problems afflicting Japanese of all socioeconomic statuses and across the archipelago. Uh, by the way, this is a very famous uh, placard here from uh, an early post-war May Day, uh, which basically says, uh, it's the children holding this up, and it basically says, we are starving. The magnanimity of the occupation, in other words, its <clears throat> overall tendency toward a genuine program of rehabilitation and reconstruction, rather than the sort of rapacious, punitive measures the Japanese had inflicted on others and fully expected to endure themselves, uh, that positive uh, sort of generosity of the Americans accounts for a good portion of the relatively positive cooperative attitude directed toward the Americans. And as mentioned, the decision to exclude Hirohito from the war crimes trials was undoubtedly key to avoiding a long counterinsurgency, if not an outright, outright tooth and nail fight to the death. After two ad hoc executions in the Philippines, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, or the IMTFE, was established on April 29, 1946, and it it was presided over by ten justices. Uh, Why it was then called a tribunal, I'm not really sure. But anyway, it it lasted until November 12, 1948. That's over 900 days, which can be usefully contrasted to the Nuremberg trial, which lasted less than a year. 28 major or Class A war criminals were tried for crimes against peace, uh, which were committed between January 1, 1928, and Japan's surrender on September 2, 1945. In addition, Class B and Class C war criminals were tried for lesser offenses. In particular, the Class A war criminals were considered to be a criminal militaristic clique, which was charged with a conspiracy to plan and carry out an aggressive war in addition to a number of other war crimes and crimes against humanity, which included forced labor, mass murder, rape, pillage, brigandage, torture, and other barbaric cruelties upon the healthless civilian populations of the overrun countries. There were 55 specific counts to the indictment, 36 representing crimes against peace, 16 represented murder, being at the same time crimes against peace, conventional war crimes, and crimes against humanity, in the wording of the... uh, actual document. And there were three uh, charges which represented conventional war crimes and crimes against humanity. 21 of the defendants were charged specifically with the planning and initiating of aggressive war in China, beginning with the invasion of Manchuria in 1931. All the defendants except two were charged with conventional war crimes and or crimes against humanity in violation of the Hague and Geneva Conventions. The indictment also advanced the sort of stumble theory, which we've talked about, among other things. Uh, In other words, that the mind of the Japanese people was systematically poisoned with harmful ideas of the alleged racial superiority of Japan over other peoples of Asia and even the whole world. Now, it may surprise you to learn that the judgment against the defendants was, in fact, divided. The majority opinion, uh, which was held by the judges from the U.S., U.K., U.S.S.R., Uh, China, by which we mean at the time Taiwan, uh, Canada, New Zealand, and the Philippines, found each defendant guilty on various charges. The specifics are not that important for our purposes today, but you can look into it yourself if you'd like. Dissenting opinions were rendered by the remaining judges, though in the end all but the Indian judge, uh, who is pictured here, eventually endorsed the majority opinion with the proviso that their separate opinions form part of the record. In other words, they registered their dissent, but eventually gave in. On the other hand, uh, Pal, the uh, Indian judge, 
uh, wrote a famous dissent, which held that the war crimes for which the defendants were tried were created ex post facto, in other words, after the fact, and that their retroactive application violated international law, mostly the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, which had made war itself illegal. At the time, the, because at the time the alleged crimes had been committed, they weren't actually crimes. So he objected to the tribunal's suppression of evidence concerning the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as well. He also argued that the real war crime was not Japanese executions of allied POWs, but rather the indiscriminate fire, carpet, and atomic bombings of Japanese civilians. Powell's opinion has been cited repeatedly in the post-war decades by Japanese supporters of the idea that the Greater East Asia War was a holy war to defend legitimate Japanese interests and furthermore protect and develop a common Asian cultural and economic sphere against white Western aggression. In other words, his opinion uh, is very much valued by the Japanese political right, so to speak. This dissent notwithstanding, seven men, including uh, Tojo Hideki, who was at the time the Prime Minister and uh, at the time of the, war, of the war with the Americans, the Prime Minister and War Minister, were sentenced to death. Uh, another 16 were sentenced to life in prison, and two others were sentenced to shorter incarcerations. Tojo and the others were executed on December 22, 1948, just in time for Christmas. The remaining sentences, uh, not just of the Class A criminals, were actually commuted by the Japanese government in 1957. In other words, this was a sort of second de-purge. Uh, Japan's sort of left-leaning, I guess you'd call it, uh, major, at least in the post-war, I guess it's, it's a little bit left-leaning, uh, major newspaper, the Asahi Shimbun, uh, editorialized, quote, if the Japanese people now fail to reflect on their moral responsibility for the war, and the execution of these seven criminals, the long trial by the International Tribunal will have gone in vain. The SIE editors must have been disappointed then by the general failure of a significant majority of Japanese to face their war responsibility, as aggressors and as victimizers, not just as victims of the military, the system, or the Americans. On the other hand, that failure was intimately bound up in Japan's break with the past and its rapid economic and social reconstruction, particularly after the occupation ended. So I want to move on to talk about the so-called 1955 system. Uh, you'll hear it also referred to as the 55 system because in Japanese it's referred to as the Gojugonen Taisei, which literally means 55 system. Um, this is the system of more or less one-party conservative rule from 1955 to the present. So in March of 1948, Yoshida Shigeru returned to the premier's office. This, in this same election, 62 former bureaucrats entered the diet. One of them was Kishinobusuke, who served as prime minister from 1957 to 1960. Kishi is the grandfather of Abe Shinzo. Uh, and he had been arrested and held for three years, but never tried as a war criminal for his role as Minister of Commerce and, uh, and Industry in the economic mobilization for Japan's war effort. Beginning with Yoshida's third cabinet, the conservatives concentrated their efforts on economic recovery and political stability, both of which were widely welcomed after the destruction of war and the chaos of the occupation years. This it's-the-economy-stupid approach to rebuilding Japan was broadly and deeply appealing, it promised a return to normalcy. This was the precursor to the 55 system, in which the Liberal Democratic Party, newly formed from the merger of the Liberal and Democratic parties, 
uh, remained in power until 1993. It took a brief hiatus then. Um, and the Socialist Party was sort of the permanent out-of-power opposition. Uh, this is a political arrangement that's been called a one-and-a-half-party system. Uh, in other words, you had an actual party, the ruling party, the LDP, and then you had the socialists who were kind of like a half party because they never actually get into power. They finally did it very briefly in 1993. There's been one other break, and that was in 2009, 2008, 2009. Uh, other than that, the LDP has been in power since 55. Um, and the stability that this system brought, for, for better and for worse, uh, was a key component of the, 1995, the 1955 system. The 55 system arose out of the turmoil then of post-war politics. Despite severe internal divisions, Japan's communist and socialist parties performed quite well in the immediate post-war elections. After 1950, however, Japan's, uh, Japan faced the red purge of SCAP and the violent terrorism and sabotage committed by communist party members at Stalin's behest after the outbreak of the Korean War. This combined to destroy public confidence in the JCP in the Japanese Communist Party. Things were messy for the next five years until the Socialist Party factions, which had been previously divided, reunited. And the conservative, liberal, and democratic parties joined forces in response. Uh, of course, if they're liberal and democratic parties that are conservative, you should probably guess from this that you can't guess the contents of policy from the names of the uh, individual parties. Go figure. Uh, the system's stability, as well as the LDP's emphasis on anti-communism and economic growth, were as welcome in Washington as they were in Tokyo. The LDP's insistence on rolling back certain occupation-era reforms and revising the constitution to allow Japan to rearm and perhaps even restore imperial sovereignty were not greeted with the same level of approval, especially by the domestic political left, which is a topic we will come to in the next lecture. In any case, the predictability and the durability of the 1955 system and the related intimate cooperative relationships of conservative politicians, elite career bureaucrats, and business leaders, this is the so-called Iron Triangle I've mentioned already, have often been given credit for the historic growth of the Japanese economy during the ensuing decades. There is disagreement, however, about the degree to which rational planning and industrial policy, what Chalmers Johnson called state-guided market systems, and what's also known as administrative guidance, uh, the debate is how much those things were responsible for economic growth. Johnson himself quite famously argued strongly for the role of the developmental state in the economic miracle, but he acknowledges that many factors were at work, including, for example, Japan's three free rides, uh, which were attained as uh, Japanese client, the, excuse me, as uh, the American client state in East Asia. These three rides were minimal defense spending because of the U.S. umbrella, ready access to its major export market, i.e. the United States, and then cheap technology transfers that drove innovation. The Korean War's special procurements, which boosted industrial production by 70% and tripled exports, and the favorable yen-dollar exchange are also frequently cited factors. So are cultural factors, whatever they are. Uh, and you can see I'm a little bit skeptical of this, but nevertheless, people often talk about them. Administrative guidance had the important function, uh, regardless of sort of the degree to which we believe it was influential, of allowing the government to act as an economic cheerleader at the very least, an agenda center, uh, agenda setter, pointing the way to a bright future. 
protective tariffs, targeted investments, and low-interest loans in strategic sectors and other developmentalist policies helped to foster confidence in the business sector. Tokyo exerted its leverage to promote the development of strategically important businesses. Shipbuilding was an early recipient of government largesse, for example, because building giant ocean liners requires enormous investments of resources, both human and material, from all across the various sectors of the economy. By gobbling up resources and labor and expertise, both in the shipyards and factories of Japan, shipbuilding was the type of industry that could kickstart the economy as a whole. Technology transfers were particularly important. The early post-war and post-occupation governments retained wartime controls over the foreign exchange reserves and technology licenses. So, in the 1950s, for example, MITI, M-I-T-I, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, convinced Japanese steelmakers to pool together their resources to purchase and share a single license for an oxygen furnace, which is a key piece of technology at the time. The free market alternative would have been for each interested producer to pay the Austrian inventor for its own separate license. By pooling their resources, Japanese producers obtained a critical, tra uh, critical technology for a small fraction of the cost uh, paid by their American competitors. Japan's steel manufacturers invested in a new generation of production facilities that allowed them to overtake U.S. makers. While acknowledging the importance of industrial policy, in contrast to Johnson, Chalmers Johnson, who I just mentioned, Andrew Gordon stresses the additional effects of international and domestic factors in Japan's rapid post-war, post-occupation economic growth and development. So around the world, economies were booming in the post-war. West Germany also had an economic miracle, for instance, and the global economy grew by an average of about 5% in the 50s and 60s. The U.S. led efforts such as GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, to eliminate international trade barriers. Uh, this kind of harkens back in some ways to the 20s idea of the capitalist peace and multilateralism and so on and so forth. Um, petroleum was cheap. It was plentiful, at least until the oil shocks of the 70s. Domestically, Gordon argues that the, uh, the role of entrepreneurship, which sort of goes against this grain of bureaucratic guidance that uh, Johnson is talking about, was uh, equal to or greater uh, than that of bureaucratic guidance or administrative guidance in the successes of the Japanese economy. Gordon also emphasizes the role of a well-educated, energetic, optimistic, dedicated workforce. In other words, high-quality human capital in his phrase. He also points to the unusually high savings rates despite rising spending. In other words, you had money uh, was both being spent in the economy and was being kept in the banks, which could be used for investments, right? It could be used for loans, etc. These private funds, deposited or invested then, became the fuel for massive business expansions. The average household saved under 10% of its income in the 1950s, but savings rates soared steadily as the economy grew. They reached 15% by 1960 and topped 20% by 1970. Put another way, savings grew at an impressive 7.5% per person per year from 1955 to 1973, which would, only, which would be a problem if they weren't also spending, which people were. Simultaneously, the, right, so spending on consumer goods was growing rapidly. While exports earned dollars that financial in, uh, investments uh, could be invested in foreign technologies, this was a kind of Meiji Part 2, domestic demand was a powerful engine of the so-called miracle 
uh, in the domestic economy, which I will discuss in a moment. And here it is, uh, the miracle. Before, but what does that mean, right? I've got it in quotes here for a reason. Uh, what was the so-called miracle? Well, in brief, until China began to replicate similar growth rates in the 1980s, it was the most remarkable period of high-speed, sustained economic expansion and development in recorded history. Between 1955 and 1973, Japan's annual gross domestic product, in other words, GDP, the total value of goods and services provided by workers and capital, grew by an average of 9.25%. Per capita GDP went up 7.3% over the same period. The size of the economy increased by over four times. Wages increased by almost three and a half times. And labor productivity increased by a similar rate. Wages began to rise. Prosperity began to spread in the 1960s. Middle and large-sized enterprises uh, <clears throat> began to pay their employees wages that were more than that, made, that more than doubled between 1955 and 1965. Even after including the period of slowdown accompanying the oil shocks of the early 1970s, the three decades from 1950 to 1980 exhibited remarkable growth. In adjusted 1980 U.S. dollars, Japan's per capita GDP grew 7.4%. That's compared to 4.9% for West Germany, 4.4% for France, 3.2% for the U.K., and just about 2% for the U.S. Official unemployment, which is a problematic figure of course, but averaged about just 1.5%. And as a result of the land reforms uh, of the occupation, tenancy was almost non-existent. In other words, people owned their own land to farm, uh, if they were farmers. The standard of living, as measured by the Engel coefficient, if you're familiar with that, uh, it's basically food expenditure divided by living expenditure, and it's a measure of, uh, how, how, uh, of poverty, roughly. Um, the Engel coefficient increased markedly. In other words, that uh, uh, people were coming rising out of poverty, with food expenditures declining from about 40% of the total family budget in 1960 to just 15% a year a, a decade later. Consumer spending during the miracle years, uh, though it seemed new and different, was in fact the revival and extension of pre-war trends, especially for the urban middle classes. A growing number of consumers shopped in a growing number of stores for a growing number of products. Household and leisure goods proliferated in both quantity and diversity. The aspirational ideal of the bright life, or akarui seikatsu, that took hold of the national imaginary by the end of the 1960s was, as Simon Partner has observed, an ill-defined, encompassing, and durable ideology. The term, he writes, implied a level of affluence sufficient to transcend the daily struggle for survival. It implied a modern home with a middle-class standard of living. It implied a nuclear family with a housewife at its center and it implied ownership of certain talismanic possessions, notably electrical goods such as a television, washing machine, and refrigerator. The apparently spontaneous, even festive nature of these purchases is captured by the slogans attached to successive waves of consumption, the three sacred treasures of the 50s, television, electronic washing machine, and refrigerator, and the three C's of the 1960s, car, room cooler, or Kuda, uh, and color television, and the three J's of the 1980s, not pictured here, jewels, jet travel, and jutaku, the 
home ownership, in other words, jutaka means home. A study of the diffusion of durable consumer goods from 1950 to 2005, excuse me, 1955 to 2005, shows waves of purchasing. First you had washing machines, then black and white televisions, refrigerators, color TVs, passenger cars, room air conditioners, microwave ovens and VCRs, and then finally personal computers and video cameras. Washing machines, TVs, and refrigerators spread with particular speed, despite the fact that these items were considerably expensive. A new TV set in 1957 would set back the average city dweller about two and a half months' salary. Despite this, spurred in part by the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, TVs could be found in more than 80% of Japanese households in 1963. By 1966, 94% of Japanese households owned at least one television, while washing machines and refrigerators could be found in 76 and 61% of homes, respectively. Many of these homes were new, and, belying the destruction of Japan's major cities just two decades earlier, many were in growing urban areas. In the first post-war decade, Japan's population grew by more than 18.5 million, some of which some of this can be accounted for by repatriated soldiers and civilians, but most of it was the result of the baby boom. Overall, throughout the 1950s and 1960s, Japan's population grew by about a million people per year. Its urban population grew at the same rate. In other words, the cities had returned to their pre-war pattern of soaking up young talent. By 1975, three out of four Japanese were living in urban areas, which was a sharp increase from just about two in five in 1950. And while the absolute number of people living in rural Japan changed little, the proportion shrunk dramatically. To meet the needs of this growing urban population, massive new apartment complexes, known colloquially as danchi, shot up on the outskirts of cities around the archipelago. Rice paddies and vegetable fields were plowed under, and replaced with a combination of public and private housing. The latter tended toward single-family homes for the higher echelons of a replenishing middle class. Derided by the foreign press as rabbit hutches, the danchi, on the other hand, were often small and, if not slipshod, then at least minimalist in their amenities by most standards. On the other hand, they were part of the prescriptive bright life, the akarui seikatsu, not least because they were new and clean and modern with chairs and tables and separate bedrooms to accommodate the aspirational nuclear family. There is a wonderful uh, book on the subject of the Danchi, which I highly recommend, uh, and which I've also uh, uh, taken up on the podcast if you'd like to listen to that. So if you're interested, please ask. William Kelly uh, described, uh, William Kelly, who was an anthropologist, uh, described the image of the ideal family, which coalesced in these years of high growth as, quote, a new, glossy projection of a socially and physically nuclear unit of rice-winner husband, homemaker-housewife, and two samurai-student children. This was a world in which, as Kelly continued, full-time, lifetime, large organization employment, the so-called sarariman, has become the workplace norm, and mass public education, relentlessly meritocratic and entrance-exam-oriented, now links home and work, child and adult. This has become the model organization of the new middle-class Japan. As the economy expanded and lifestyles homogenized, this new middle-class, this model lifeway, this, uh, it, it began to have plausibility. It began to have resonance for an increasingly large number of, J of Japanese. 
Uh, and we'll come back to this in sort of a little bit more detail as we as we move forward. But David Chiamachi wrote that, quote, the perception of lifestyle differences was fundamentally altered in those years. Thanks to high growth, mass consumerism penetrated fully Japanese society. Consumer goods, which had been confined to a small upper class, had become, in a few years, items that could be found in nearly all households. In other words, the convergence of middle-class lifestyles, mostly in the aspirational, uh, glossy projections, which uh, Kelly writes about, um, but also to a significant degree, in fact, led to an increasingly widespread Japanese self-identification as middle class, which again is the thing we're going to come back to. By the 1960s, everyone lived in the same apartments. They went to the same schools. They read the same magazines. They watched the same TV shows. They worked in the same companies. They did the same white-collar jobs. Or at least it seemed so when compared to the ashes and the chaos of the late 1940s and the early 1950s. Everyone was upwardly mobile in a homogeneous, egalitarian society. Or at least it could certainly plausibly seem so when compared to the extraordinary disparities of the early post-war. As Simon Partner and others have pointed out, in the early 1960s the new middle class of white-collar professionals was just a tiny fraction of the population. And, for example, housing conditions for most Japanese, even those who qualified as middle class, were very far removed from the idealized homes portrayed in advertising materials. Nevertheless, in general, we experience relative difference, in other words, upward and downward trends, far more vividly and far more saliently than we do absolute difference. So, while it was hardly true that each Japanese individual, family, or community was universally seeing improvement in the quality of living, for example. It was true that urban-rural gaps were closing, that the nuclear family was becoming the norm, that life paths, in other words, for school, work, etc., and lifestyle ideals were becoming standardized, even if the actual lifestyles were uh, not homogenized to the same extent. All this owed a great deal to the expanded role of massive commercial and bureaucratic institutions in everyday life. More than 80% of births occurred in the home in 1955. Twenty years later, that number barely exceeded 1%. Secondary and post-secondary education similarly became widely shared. These were formative experiences. From 1950 to 1970, the proportion of eligible students continuing to high school jumped from 50% to 82%. Just five years later, almost 35% were heading on to college. This was a rate higher than most of Europe at the time. And Japan's educational system was, as uh, Kelly argued, relentlessly meritocratic. Andrew Gordon put it basically the same way when he said it was stunningly egalitarian. In the 1960s, the percentage of students at Japan's elite national universities from each of the five family income quintiles was remarkably even. This trend, of course, begins to reverse in the 1970s, when wealthier families found ways to kill social mobility and sidestep meritocracy to game the system uh, for their own advantage. The spread of shared experience was accelerated by physical changes in the landscape that brought people more easily and quickly in contact with each other, from paved roads to the Shinkansen, which began operations in 1964. Moreover, the overall national mood was buoyed by a combination of macroeconomic trends and media, commerce and government policy, which took advantage of the emerging bright life. Japanese society in the 1950s resembled its pre-war and wartime predecessors far more than it did even its 1960s successor. It was, finally, substantively post-war, rather than trans-war. This too had a profound effect on perceptions of change and a general upward, bright trajectory. 
By many conceivable measures, life chances continued to vary widely, Kelly wrote, but a Japanese-inflected middle-class consciousness gave a pervasive homogeneity to standards of achievement and designs for living. This was reflected, as I've indicated, in self-identification as middle class. In other words, the foundation of a shared, attractive, ideal model was responsible for the famous government polls that showed 90% of Japanese considered themselves to belong to the middle class. And this is independent of economic data, which suggests something quite different. So we're talking about self-image, self-identification, um, and we're therefore talking about the stories that people told themselves, how they felt about how they lived. Hierarchy was compressed and a more egalitarian spirit spread. As a result, beginning in the mid-1960s, 9 in 10 Japanese declared themselves to be middle class in these nationwide surveys carried out by the cabinet office. Out of 16,000 respondents in 1967, 88% considered themselves to be middle class. 60% were content with their present living standards. 44% felt that their living standards were likely to improve in the future. To my mind, this last data point is actually the most important. It's also important that the number of people identifying as both lower class and lower middle class declined sharply, with a corresponding increase in the number of Japanese who put themselves in the middle middle class. This data was picked up by mainstream media outlets, who began propounding the idea of the 100 million all middle class society, Ichioku Sochu Ryu. Not only were these surveys more or less designed to produce a predetermined result, but similar results were actually found in other industrial, industrialized economies. Um, and as I've said, there was little empirical economic data to support any substantive middle-classness for so many Japanese. So Ichioku Sochuryu, this idea of the 100 million all middle class, was manufactured. It wasn't particularly Japanese, and it wasn't empirically supported. It was a myth, but myths are important more important in many cases than empirically measurable realities. Because we live in the stories, not in the realities to a very large extent. As Richard White, uh, who's a historian of the American West, uh, referencing the work of Richard Slotkin, who's a literary historian or something, uh, wrote once, <coughs> in its everyday colloquial sense, myth means falsehood. In a second, deeper sense, however, myths are not so much falsehoods as explanations. Myths are stories that tell why things and people are what they are. Modern myths are stories drawn from history that have acquired through usage over many generations a symbolizing function central to the society that produces them. Myths give meaning to the world, and facts are rarely at the heart of historical disputes. And it was precisely this middle classification and homogenization of standards of living during the years of high growth that also gave birth to the myth of Japanese national, social, and ethnic homogeneity. From a sprawling multi-ethnic multi empire in the first half of 1945, by the time the Tokyo Olympics rolled around, just two decades later, Japan had become, in its self-image and in the eyes of the world, a hermetically sealed island nation, a homogeneous nation-state, the Tangitsu Minzoku Kokka, which is a phrase you still hear thrown around, distinguished by its isolation from the world, its endogenous cultures and traditions, and its unique ethnic racial unity and harmony. Now, it's true that the loss of Japan's colonies and its overseas territories, and the enforced 
I guess you could call it Sakoku of the occupation years, during which no Japanese other than so-called war brides, the Japanese wives of American servicemen, were allowed to leave the country. Um, all this certainly helped to enforce a sense of isolation. Japan was in many ways actually isolated. But the socioeconomic changes of the high growth years were far more important to the myth of the homogeneous nation. The myth of homogeneity, it should be noted here, also succeeded and replaced significant political conflict at the beginning of the 1960s, which is a topic we're going to get to next time. But I want to close up this lecture thinking about the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. International spectacles, uh, sometimes called mega events, uh, that's a whole sort of field of study if you're interested. Uh, and in Japan's case, we're talking about the 64 Olympics first, followed by uh, Expo 70, the first Asian World Fair, uh, which was held in Osaka, and then the Winter Games in Sapporo in uh, 1972, uh, were vital to Japan's post-war recovery. They were displays of J Japanese national unity, and they were, uh, and, and its success, I guess, as well, uh, and they were catalysts of national unification through infrastructure development, shared experiences, etc. Uh, they were, these experiences were shared by the enormous television audiences for the Olympics, by the half of Japanese population that traveled to Osaka to attend the World's Fair, etc. National integration was understood uh, as as, as a process, um, and, th and that's clear from the official materials produced for both events, which explicitly refer to the intended role of these events in promoting national pride and promoting national unity. So the discussion which follows uh, is limited to the Olympic Games uh, of 64 because they were first and also they were incredibly impactful uh, and had this important lasting place in the myth-making of post-war Japan. The Olympics, uh, in other words, had enormous symbolic value. The Tokyo Games official documentary opened with the following epigraph. The Olympics are a symbol of human aspiration. And this is true as far as it goes, but the 1964 games were more about Japanese aspirations. The 1960s constituted a delicate moment in the evolution of the national self-images as Japan moved from a defeated, divided country without a first-rate economy toward greater prosperity and confidence. Japan had regained its sovereignty in 1952, but its diplomatic and economic recovery were heavily circumscribed. Admittance to the, <clears throat> excuse me, admittance to the United Nations in 1956 was a major positive step, as was entrance to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, in the same year as the Olympics, 1964. But relations with Asian neighbors were still naturally fraught. Amidst the lingering devastation of war, post-war leaders understood the importance of international trade to bring back the national economy. As Jessamyn Abel observed, uh, expansion of trade depended, on <clears throat> depended upon the improvement of relations with many countries and the revision of negative images of Japan. Action on the international stage was severely limited, not only by still fresh memories of Japan's wartime past, but also by the growing tensions of the Cold War and uncertain domestic political conditions. Tokyo was torn between its security alliance with Washington and its desire to restore diplomatic and economic ties with Mao's China, for example. Japan turned to sporting diplomacy as one instrument of international policy. Given its recent history of imperialist aggression in Asia and the renunciation of military force codified in the post-war constitution, Japan's hard power was tightly constrained 
and foreign, foreign affairs experts following a pattern that had evolved during the wartime years turned to soft alternatives such as cultural exchange and popular international events. The Olympics displayed Japan as a fully recovered, confident, unified leader of both the international community on the one hand and technological and scientific endeavors on the other. To both its people and to the world, Japan predicted a na excuse me, projected a national self-image that mixed traditional culture and scientific modernity, virtuous pacifism, and economic competitiveness. Simultaneously, renewed national confidence can be seen in an emphasis on Japan's special position as self-appointed champion of the non-Western world. Um, as I said, the Olympics had symbolic significance. This was true in many ways, but I want to emphasize that it was symbolic in the same way that the self-identification uh, as middle class was symbolic. It wasn't the data that mattered. It was the myth. In fact, the Tokyo Games were marred by funding controversies, uh, the fact that the number of foreign visitors fell far short of uh, the projections, etc. But the Olympiad was treated by Japan as a sort of new Meiji restoration. Patriotism and morals were back in the school curriculum. The government called on citizens to improve public hygiene and sanitation and exhorted shopkeepers to curtail shady retail sales tactics. Uh, by the way, Beijing did the same thing for 2008. Um, and it also stressed to citizens the need to present Japan in a positive light to the world. Again, Beijing, 2008. Uh, and I believe that was the same for the uh, Seoul Olympics. Uh, more than anything, the Olympics were a mass-mediated national event experienced simultaneously across Japan by unprecedented numbers of Japanese of all demographics. This mass collective shared experience of national pride enforced a sense of horizontal, intimate, organic national identity. 84% of Japan's TVs were tuned in to the opening ceremony, 85% to the finals of the women's volleyball tournament uh, because the Japanese women won a completely unexpected gold over the heavily favored Soviets. Uh, they became national heroes, inspired generations of Japanese women athletes especially. The positive attention of the world, the success of Japanese athletes, the monumental architecture of Tangekenzo's stadium in Yoyogi, and the opening of the Shinkansen connecting uh, Tokyo and Kyoto were all part of a media-induced surge of national pride in peaceful collective achievements in economy, technology, sports, and culture. Peter Deuce nicely summed up the national mood as Japan rang out the 60s and stood on the cusp of the 70s. According to Deuce, Japan entered the 70s in a mood of national optimism and renewed self-confidence that had been growing since the middle of the previous decade. There was pride that Japan had emerged as the world's third largest industrial power, and quiet satisfaction that foreign experts uh, predicated, uh, excuse me, predicted the emergence of a prosperous Japanese superstate in the 1980s. So uh, we're going to wrap up, but I want to do a quick summary of the lecture. So we focused on the positives of post-war recovery uh, from around the around 1950 to the late 1960s. Uh, in the second half of the lecture. The first half, of course, was uh, on the reverse course and wartime tribunal. Um, in the next lecture, we're going to look at some of the challenges which Japan faced uh, during and after the period of high growth and finish up by looking at the economic phenomena that followed high growth, namely the oil shocks of the 70s, the bubble of the 80s. And we're going to finish up with the bursting of the bubble, with the tragedies of 1995, 
and with Japan's loss of confidence, uh, the onset of what's now known as the lost decade. So uh, we're going to just quickly review, uh, as I said, uh, a few things that we talked about. We began with the reverse course uh, in which the Cold War uh, changed U.S. policy quite dramatically resulted in a, uh, an about-face on several key issues, uh, labor, for example, uh, in the interest of keeping Japan a conservative, democratic capitalist client state to, uh, under the United States and in the U.S. bloc in the Cold War. We also talked about the War Crimes Tribunal, uh, the origins of the 55 system of LGP rule, uh, its relationship to the Iron Triangle of conservative politics, bureaucracy, and big business, and finally, we address the so-called miraculous era of high growth. Um, I tried to emphasize not only the transformative socioeconomic effects, but also the impact of uh, this period on the shared social imaginary of post-war society. The myths, the just-so stories of who Japan was, what Japan was, why Japan was the way it was. The 1964 Olympics in particular represent a sort of watershed, both domestically and internationally, and so we talked about them last. Internationally, Japan by this point retook a place of prominence in the world with the Olympics, uh, also admission to the OECD, and though we didn't discuss it specifically, passing, for example, West Germany in GDP to become the second largest economy outside the Soviet bloc. Domestically, national pride was deliberately rekindled by government and big business, and the first truly mass-mediated event that united nearly all Japanese in a moment of ecstatic, festive simultaneity, uh, the Olympics in other words, helped to cement the sense of Japan as a homogeneous, unified nation, uh, a sense that had been growing over the previous decade of economic growth and convergent lifestyles.